Okay, let's get on with sermon today. Uh, I did not select the one that was played last week. Someone else suggested it. It was the first of a series of three having to do with unity, which is certainly important and uh, timely because we do not have much unity in the church and even in our nation. Unity that we may have had in the past is fast disappearing as generals and politicians and various ones are beginning to argue openly about which way we're headed, where we're going, what we're going to do. There are cries for impeachment for some of the leading figures in our government and so on. So there's a lot of disunity. There is a scripture in Isaiah that talks about one year you will hear rumors in the land and the next year violence. I don't know whether we're in the year of rumors or not, but I would not be surprised to see violence in the land, ruler against ruler, as Isaiah says, within the next year or so, based on where we see things going today. So unity is something we should certainly be seeking. God uh, and his Son, the Father and the Son, are one, and Christ prayed his last prayer on this earth that we would become one as they are one. So that is a primary goal today, is that we become unified and one as the Father and the Son are one. That is the Father's and the Son's will. That's their desire. That's their hope. That's what they're working toward. And if that is what they are doing, then we want to be caught doing what they are doing, right? We don't want to be found going a different direction. Well, in that sermon you heard last week, uh, I addressed the first problem that creates disharmony, disunity, and difficulty, and that is pride. Uh, if you're going to discuss unity, you have to discuss that which stands in the way of unity, and the first issue is pride. We will never be unified until we are humbled, until we are humbled before God and before each other and before his word. Unity cannot come in the church without that. Now, I want to go back in our spiritual lives to the very beginning and ask a question. Where did we all start? Let's ask another question. Where will we end up? And this is a familiar quote. I don't know now the source of it, but it you probably all have heard it at one time or another, or many times. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. If you do not make up your mind where you are going, what you are going to do, what your goals and purposes are, and firmly commit yourself to a course of action, if you don't stand up predeterminedly, or something, you will fall for anything. If you're wavering, if your mind isn't made up, you can be swayed a different direction. You can, before you realize it, be in above your head and lose your compass. In other words, we need to make up our minds our course of action, where we're going to go. Because if you don't make up your mind, you will wind up somewhere else 
than where you wish to be. So where did we all start? Let's go back to Romans 7. And let's understand the principle here to begin with. And I don't want this to be a, in that sense, corrective sermon, although God's Word certainly corrects us. I hope that by the time I'm done today, we will be encouraged, that we will be inspired, that we will be empowered to go where we've made up our minds to go and have the strength and the knowledge of how to go there, what will be required, and where we'll get the help to do it. Let's go to Romans 7, and I want to start with verse 12. Now, he's been discussing the law here, and one of his conclusions, a major conclusion is, in spite of what Protestantism will tell you, that wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. I had some people try to tell me, oh, 10, 12 years ago, very adamant about it, that the law is negative, that it is a curse. And in one sense, it is because of the penalty of the law. It isn't the law itself, though, that is bad. It is the breaking of the law that brings the penalty. So we look at the penalty and say the law is bad. No, 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 no. No, the law, if you keep it, will lead to peace and harmony, health and happiness, good marriages, good families, and all the things that we would desire. If we break it, the penalty is the curse of the law, but keeping it produces holiness. So therefore, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and it is just or fair, and it is good. It's a good thing. Was then that which is good made death to me? God forbid. How can the law, which is good, become death to us? Well, we break it, and the penalty of sin is death. God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The commandment points out what sin is, defines it, and God says we'll die if we go that way. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now here is a glimpse of a very, very serious problem that affects every last one of us. The law is spiritual, but we are, can I use the word normal, carnal, human. Carnal just means human. Our problem is we are human. And humans have been sold, bought by sin. Adam and Eve in the garden had no guilt, no conscience, no shame. They could walk about fully naked and not even think about it as anything shameful or uh, immodest in any way. And yet, when they broke God's instruction, suddenly they had all these negative emotions. 
shame, guilt, frustration. Uh, they became jealous, envious, and their children became liars, thieves, and murderers, fornicators, and adulterers. And peace and harmony was broken. In other words, instead of being and thinking on a godly emotional plane, they suddenly understood the evil side of what happens when human beings react to Satan's wavelength and his ways. Peace and harmony goes away. In other words, innocence was shattered. They were no longer innocent. Up to that point, they were just like little babes, totally innocent. Knew no evil, saw no evil, heard no evil. Didn't know what evil was. But when they disobeyed God, suddenly evil was present. And evil produced wrong emotions, hate, bitterness, and jealousy toward each other and toward God. Just instantly. They went and hid. Why do you hide? Why do we have something to hide? Because no matter what it is we are doing or have done, deep down inside, despite what we might be thinking we want to be doing, deep down inside we know certain things are wrong and produce wrong results. Therefore, we hide them from others. We are afraid of what others will think of us if they know what we are doing. So we hide it from them, don't we? And we try to hide it from God, don't we? Because deep in us, we know. Somewhere down there, if we'll admit it or not. So Paul says, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. We became the slave of sin. Adam and Eve did, and it's been passed on down. Then he says, For that which I do, I allow not. In my mind, I know I shouldn't go there, but I do anyway. I do anyway. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. That creates a, le a lot of conflict, doesn't it? Because you're warring with yourself. We're not at peace as human beings, are we? We're at war. We're at war in our own mind because we're being pulled this way, this way, that way, by this world, by Satan, by our own desires. And yet we know, deep down inside, we should be walking a different way. Paul grasped that. The battle that is going on in every mind in this room, and I'm over the, hearing this wherever you may be or hear the tape later, has this war going on. None of us are immune from it. If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. I'll, I'll admit that the law is good and I should do it this way, but man, I find myself going the other way. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. It is an in integral part of us. We're souls to sin as human beings. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, my body, my mind, myself, dwells no good thing. 
For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Don't you find yourself sometimes losing the war? Losing the battle? In our thoughts, in our actions, whatever? There's a war going on. That's why he said, fight the good fight, and why he says, put on the whole armor of God to fight against principalities and powers of Satan and ourselves and the world. Verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. When I find myself wanting to do good, I can't get rid of the evil. It's still there. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I mean, we can intellectually recognize that God's law is good and that it will produce good things. But at the same time, verse 23, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. The body wants to do everything contrary to what God says. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Emmanuel, the Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I'm not going to read all of this. It's Romans 7 and 8, or power-packed with what we as human beings go through. Let's go on down to verse 5 of the next chapter, verse chapter 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. If we're thinking fleshly, we'll mind the things of the flesh. We have to come to think of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, to be naturally minded, to be human minded, is death. Leads to death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now we have a choice to make here. Are we going to follow the way of normal, natural human beings and wind up dead? Or will we walk after the Spirit and wind up with life and peace? Because, here is a causal factor in cause and effect. Because the carnal, that is the normal human mind, is enmity against God. It hates the way of God. It is an enemy of God. Believe it or not, every human being walking on the face of this earth who is not walking in the Spirit of God has an animosity, an enmity against the things of God. Most of them generally don't hate the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church or either Shintoists or Buddhists could care less. But the minute they hear the truth of God being preached, they hear commandment keeping is necessary, and they become angry. You've seen it with your friends and relatives back at the beginning when you started keeping God's laws. They don't care if you keep Sunday, but if you keep Saturday, their back comes up immediately. They just don't like it. 
I don't care if you keep Christmas. Tell them you're going to the Feast of Tabernacles, and they get that look. I mean, it can be a false religion, and they don't really get too angry about it. But the minute you start telling the truth, and the enmity and the animosity begins to show. It's just as natural a thing as there is. It is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. There is so much animosity and enmity against God's ways that the normal human fleshly mind on its own cannot, will not, submit to God. Now, we are being transformed so that we are beginning to walk by the Spirit, and therefore we can and will decide to do it right. But Paul, an apostle, who had been converted many years, still had the war going on. We, some of us, have been in the church 20, 30, 40, 50 years now. But the war continues, doesn't it? Every day to bring our thoughts into captivity, our actions into captivity. And it is not easy. It doesn't come easy. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, since we are being converted. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do kill, or mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. What he's telling us here is that we have to go absolutely against everything that our mind and our body tells us to do. That's a tall order, isn't it? This is a tough chapter. But I'm leading to a point here. I want us to go back and review where we did start. We began to learn the truth. And God opened our minds, didn't he? Some of us, even when we first heard it, had an animosity there. We didn't want to hear it. Herbert Armstrong was the same way. His wife told him, we have to keep the Sabbath. He says, no, no way, Loma. We don't have to do that. I'll go to my Bible. I'll... He studied and he studied and he studied and he found out he's wrong. But there was a natural animosity there. If she just said, we need to go to church on Sunday morning, he'd probably said, oh, okay. But keep the Sabbath? No way. I'll prove you wrong. So we had to come to a certain humility in order to even accept the truth. But I want to interject right here that none of us in this room or hearing this broadcast today would be in the church of God if God did not personally and individually call us to be here. You cannot come unless the Spirit of the Father draw you. John 6, 44. You could not be here with an open mind that is being converted, changed, unless God individually, specifically opened your mind to see something besides the normal human carnal way that everybody in the world is living. Understand how special 
in one way that makes you as an individual. That doesn't make you better than anyone else, does it? Because God said very clearly that he calls the weak and the base. And very few of the mighty and noble. So, on the one hand, he teaches us humility to realize that we ain't much or we wouldn't be here. But on the other hand, since we aren't much, he was willing to give us his spirit and hopefully we wouldn't suddenly think that we are much. Okay? Our assessment of ourselves still has to be that we esteem others better than ourselves, that we are humble and meek and cannot so much as lift our head to God, but bow our head and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the attitude he wants us to maintain. Yet at the same time, he wants us to see that our calling is very special. That without him, we could not be here. So I don't care who you are and what background you might have come from, how good or how bad, you couldn't be here today except God had pulled your name out of the hat. Had to have done it. Now with that comes a great responsibility. Let's consider this. I'm not going to go back into the Old Testament or into Exodus today, except on a quick verbal trip. Remember when Israel was being called to come out of Egypt. God sent Moses, trained him specifically to do that job. Now, he left those people in a state of slavery for hundreds of years. When they were led out of Egypt, they had been slaves to a system. They had come to adopt everything that that system stood for. They worshipped crocodiles, they worshipped flies, they worshipped snakes, they worshipped the Nile River, they worshipped, in a word, Satan the devil. And when they were told, God is going to lead you out of slavery and give you freedom, they even said, which God? Who is this God? Is it the fly God? Is it the crocodile God? Is it the Nile? Which, which God is going to be? They didn't know by that time the eternal true God. Now we were in the same situation. Christ, when he was on the earth, said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were supposedly the most righteous people around, the ones who had the truth about God and Moses, he said, you worship, you know not what? And to put it even more bluntly, he said, you worship your father, the devil. This world and its religions do not know who God is. They don't know which God we're talking about. I mean, even the most dedicated Protestants are worshiping Satan, the devil, and not knowing it. Just like ancient Israel was. Now, God had to work with them. 
And when he sent the plagues on Egypt, he sent them on Israel as well. He is doing and will do exactly the same thing today. Remember what it says in Haggai about it's time to build a temple and people say, oh no, it's not. And then he says, don't you have pockets with holes in them? Doesn't it seem like you bring your paycheck home and there isn't enough to go around? Doesn't it seem like you put it in your pocket and it just falls to the ground? Aren't we in that situation? Haven't we seen corn go up three and four times in price in the last year and it's soon going to start affecting the price of tortillas, believe me, among other things. And your paycheck is going to get smaller and smaller. Your subservience to this system of Babylon is going to get stricter and stricter. Just as when trouble came to the Egyptians, they just made the Israelites work that much harder. Make the same bricks, no straw. On and on it went. We're going through the same thing today. Now God does say that for the righteous, at some point, He will make a difference. There came a point when the plagues only hit the Egyptians and not the Israelites. So God began to give them a glimmer of hope. He began to say, you are different than these Egyptians. And he will show us that we are different from these Babylonians around us, if indeed we are. Now when they came out of there, did they just, each man, make up his own mind, I'm going to grab my family and my cows and goats, and I'm going to head this way. And another one says, well, I'm going to get my cows and goats and family, and I'm going to go that way. I am an American, uh, excuse me, I'm an Israelite, and I can make up my own mind what I will do. Is that the way they did it? No. God had injected in them, through hundreds of years of slavery, an attitude commensurate to that of slaves. When they were told to march out, God had put Moses and Aaron, and through them, captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, captains of tens, so that they would be organized and they would do it in a good fashion. They lined them up in ranks of five. They didn't just go out as a horde like you might have seen in movies. They lined up and marched out in ranks of five. Very organized. They were not independent Americans. They had become slaves. Now we have ourselves become bondservants of the Lord Christ. We have willingly made ourselves subject to him and his ways and his laws. We said when we went under the water to be baptized that we would die and that we would die daily henceforth or thenceforth. So we've been trying to crucify the self every day since. Some days we work harder at it than others, don't we? But we all set our hands to that plow. Now we are to voluntarily become servants or slaves. Where we willingly bend to God's wishes, His ways, 
and to those even whom he has put in charge to lead us in his way. Now that goes against everything that we have been taught in Babylonian America today. But historically, God has always put people there to tell people to march out in a horde or in ranks of five or ranks of ten or however God wanted it done. He has always done that, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has told us at the end time he is going to appoint leaders to take us where we need to go and that we will have to do it in a certain way. Even when it comes time to flee to a place of safety, God gives instructions about how to go about it. He warns you specifically, do not go back in your house and get anything. Do not do anything but go when you see the armies gathered around the Jerusalem that he is speaking of in that scripture, which is a different one than the world recognizes. It is the towns without walls of Zechariah 2. And Jerusalem may not be in her own place, as Zechariah says, and it will have to be changed. So God gives a specific instruction. If you deny that and say, well, I think I ought to go this way, or I don't think it's time yet, or whatever, or I need to go back and get my toothbrush, or whatever, you'll be left out. First Corinthians seven twenty three says we are bought with a price. The price was Christ's blood. He bought us. If we have been baptized, had lay hands laid on us and become a part of his church, we are bought with his blood. Now when you're bought, who do you belong to? Yourself? No, you belong to the one who purchased you. Now, Satan owned us all. We were slaves of sin, right? We've already read that. So Christ paid the price to buy us back, or to redeem us, if you will. And since he bought us, and we voluntarily went under the water and received his spirit by the laying on of hands, we accepted that purchase voluntarily. Now we are bound to live by his ways. He's offered us an upgrade in John 15, 15. He says, I don't tell servants everything, but I'm even going to call you friends now. We accept the purchase price just because we're now a friend doesn't mean we still, he doesn't still own us. He's making a friend of his servants. One does not do away with the other. It is simply an upgrade. You're on the same plane, you're just in first class instead of economy. Same destination, same God, same pilot, just an upgrade in the seating. First class gets better treatment. Friends are told everything. Servants are only told what to do. So God tells us, yes, you better do what you're told, but at the same time, I'm going to give you more information. I'll tell you all. I won't keep you in the dark. That's first class. And we have another problem, 
And I want to go to Romans 13. It says we have to be subject to powers that be, whether they be in the world or not. We always have to put God ahead. Acts 5.29, obey God rather than man. But so long as man doesn't cause us to disobey God in some form or fashion, we should honor those powers that God has put there, because he did put them there. So he says in verse 7, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then it should be translated really in verse 8, You owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. And to define that then, he tells us what loving others means. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness or lie, you shall not covet or desire things that are wrong for you to have. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever comes up, we have to recognize that I won't do anything to that person that I would not want done to me and love them in the right way. Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. The whole church went to sleep. The whole church was kicked out of bed. Some are sleeping on the floor now. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. It's nearer than it was in 72 or 75 for sure. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Walk in the light of God's ways, not the darkness of this world. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting, drunkenness, uh, partying and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put you on the eternal Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. We know the truth, don't we? We know what we ought to be doing, don't we? But we make excuses for ourselves. You know, any addiction, what is an addiction? It's something that has hold of you. It's something you do or want to do. It's something that is not good for you if it is in the class of an addiction. Human beings are not addicted to good. They're not addicted to truth. They're addicted to drugs and alcohol and sex and money and all kinds of things is what they're addicted to. Addiction is a modern term. Addiction in, let's say, Bible parlance, would be idolatry. Anything that we are drawn to or that has a hold on us is something that keeps us from God in some form or in some degree. And therefore, it becomes idolatry because it comes between us and God. So maybe we need to get rid of that word addiction a little bit and understand it in its true and pure form, and that is, that is, idolatry. It's something we put ahead of God's way. And quit making provision for our flesh 
to fulfill the lusts and the covetousness thereof. Don't put yourself in a position so that you will give in to whatever your idolatry might happen to be. But if we want to do something, we will put ourselves in a position so that it might happen anyway, because that's what we really want. That is our carnal side, and it's not walking after the Spirit. time is it getting to be? I don't want to get too far carried away on some of these things because I, I'm leading up to something here. Let's go for a moment to Isaiah 59, though, before we get off this human negative side. And I, I want us to grasp something. We went through this when we went through Isaiah not too long ago, but I want to refer back to it here because it shows that we've come a long way since Adam and Eve. And I don't mean it in the same way they used to say, you've come a long way, baby, with the emancipation of women and so on, and that they'd made a significant upgrade. That's not what I mean. And we'll see it here. Behold, Isaiah 59, the eternal's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. God sees and he hears perfectly. He doesn't have impairment. Here's the problem. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Now, we've talked a lot about turning to God with our heart so that he might turn his face back to us. It was our sins that caused him to turn away in the first place. He can't stand them. For your hands are defiled with blood. Now, maybe we're not out killing people, but our hands are certainly defiled with the blood of Christ because our sins cost His blood. And what we do to each other spiritually could cause each other's blood to be shed, and maybe someone missed out on eternal life because of the way we, we react. Your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perverseness. We can take this spiritually on ourselves, and we can also understand that Israel and the rest of the world is in this position, and he is about to destroy the world. None calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. They trust in vanity, speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They think of it, and they do it. They hatch cockatrice eggs, poisonous eggs that produce poisonous reptiles. And weave the spider's web. He that eats of their eggs dies, and that which is crushed breaks out into a viper. I believe that this being an end-time prophecy right near the end of Isaiah is probably a specific prophecy of the Internet. The Internet, I would guess, is 98% evil. 97, 99, whatever you want, certainly above 90% evil. You can find good things on the Internet, but most of it is bent toward greed and avarice and sin of some kind and to get you to do things that you need not do. The Internet has become one of Satan's greatest, if not the greatest, tool on this earth. 
when Adam and Eve sinned originally, they lost a degree of innocence. Suddenly they felt ashamed. Suddenly they felt naked. Suddenly they felt afraid of God. They did not fear God in a frightful way up to that point. And that innocence was destroyed. I think that the Internet has destroyed more innocence more quickly than anything has in the history of the world. The children of America, and indeed the children of the world, because even in Africa where people can't afford most of them computers, they can go to an internet cafe and they can look up anything that has been done and photographed and presented to be seen. And if you think that most American children and teenagers have not gone on that internet and seen anything that human beings can do to other human beings, donkeys, or dogs, then you are extremely naive. They've been there and done that. 40, 50, 60, 80 years ago, you expected people who were 10, 12, 14, 16 years of age to have a certain innocence. That they had not seen all kinds of sin, that they had not perhaps participated in those sins, but this world has changed. Now they can, at the flick of a button, see anything that has ever been done. And there are millions of websites to show that. Millions of them. And those sites will say, you must be 18 to enter this site. Oh, well, I better not go there. But that button, that mouse, does not know whether that finger is 8 or 80, does it? No way of knowing. And the children of this world, of this nation, and of the church of God are far less innocent than you parents can even imagine. Most American teenagers, most, have seen things that most adults and grandparents have never even imagined never even thought about or thought possible. The age of innocence is gone. Our children are not nearly so innocent as we might think they are. It started with Adam and Eve, and it is culminating in this end-time age in a way that is absolutely incredible. And the Internet is Satan's biggest tool to do that. And if the people of this nation and this world think their children are not curious about those things and eager to see, then they're clueless. They are beyond naive. It is a spider's web. What does a spider build a web to do?
A spider's web is there to catch, to ensnare, to captivate, so that what is caught there can then be killed with the poison of the spider. Satan has seen to it that there has been a spider's web that encompasses the whole earth and that most of society is being caught in that web and now will be poisoned and crushed to death and eaten by the society and culture and wind up dead. That is Satan's purpose behind the Internet, and he's used human beings to create it. And when it says you must be 18, it is not trying to protect your children. It is trying to protect the creeps that made the site by not allowing anyone under age to go there. Be aware. Just be aware. Now, I want to change directions here. I've hinted at this at the beginning, that God brought each and every one of us here individually, personally. Pick this out of the herd, but I want that one. Just as a lion will pick out a particular antelope and chase that one while the rest scatter elsewhere, it zeroes in. God zeroed in on you, and he zeroed in on me. By name, by personality, and he called us each individually to be a part of his church. And out of all of those that he has called by name, he is now choosing those names, those people, that he is going to use in his end-time work. Now I want you to consider something here. And I hope that you will find it inspiring and helpful. God has a very important work to do here at the end. He is going to enlist someone from the world, a Cyrus, as Isaiah 44 and 45 say, to help the church and the temple to be built. He says in Haggai and in Zechariah that he will call specific ones and bring them to the end-time leadership that he is choosing and that they will build a temple. They will get rid of their pride and their vanity and they will depart from this world which is a bag with holes, and they will go his way and do things his way, and that they will build a glorious temple that far surpasses anything that has ever been on this earth to date, <laughs> including that of Worldwide Church of God by far. They will be a people chosen specifically for this. This is touched on and Peter, because he's talking to first fruits. But this becomes even more specific because Peter and James and John and those people were an earlier part of the first fruits. Those who will be chosen at the end have come to the climax of the ages. They have come to the very end time work where God will make known who God is. There will be no question who the real God is. The world worships Satan today. 
And when Satan makes his last world religion known, almost all people on this earth will directly worship the Antichrist, a human being who represents Satan the devil. There will be very, very few who know the true God. But he is going to make bare his arm as to who he is. And he's going to do it in an unequivocal way. It can be rejected, but it cannot be denied, truthfully and honestly, because God will make it plain. Now, if he has called you now, he is hoping to choose you to be a part of this end-time age that will stand up to the culture, the society, the ways of this world, reject them, depart from them, and have nothing to do with them. Everything worldly, everything Babylonian must go because God is looking for a particular kind of person to do his end-time work. Let's see it here in 1 Peter 2. Verse 9. You are a chosen generation. This generation chosen above all, because this is the most important work to be done right now and henceforth. It is more important than the early New Testament church it is more important than David. It is more important than Moses. It is more important than anything God has done before. And the whole Bible and all the prophecies are pointed toward the fulfillment of the end-time prophecies in the biggest, smashing, final climax of the ages. Everything up to this point has been nothing but a type. Moses bringing Israel out of Egypt, three, four million of them, was nothing but a type. Starting the New Testament church was nothing but a type of what will happen at the end. When Peter saw, speaking in tongues, when he saw miracles and healings, he thought this must be what Joel was talking about. And indeed, it was in a minimal way. It was not the smashing grand climax of the ages. It was merely a type of what is about to happen. We are living, you and me, today, you and I, today, in the most exciting, incredible, amazing, climactic age that has ever been. God is going to do things that would have made the prophets open their mouths in awe and go slack-jawed over. He has said very clearly in Jeremiah 31, I believe it is, that what we see in this end time will make us completely forget Israel coming out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. It is going to be so much more dynamic, so much more dramatic so much more powerful and worldwide that you'll never even think of those other things again because this is going to be awesome. And we have opportunity to be part of it. 
We are a chosen generation. This is being fulfilled today more than it was with those people to whom Peter was writing then. Many are called now. Few will be chosen. A royal priesthood. We are to come to be a holy, royal priesthood of God. Now let's shake ourselves mentally out of our rut, brethren. We are called for a specific purpose. We're not here to play church. We're not here to hear those words and go about our way the way we always have. We're here to be transformed, to be changed, and not to be like we have been. We're to be royal. Royalty. The royalty of God. The royal family of God acts differently than the royal family of England or Germany or Belgium. It acts differently. A holy nation. Not unholy. Not ungodly. Not half and half. Holy. A redeemed people. In some cases in the Old Testament, when you sorted out your flock and herd, if there was a specific animal you wanted, in some cases God would let you redeem that one. You had to pay an extra price, but you could have that one. In some cases, depending on the meaning, you couldn't do that at all, just whichever one came under the rod. But under certain circumstances, God would let you redeem a specific animal that you really, really wanted. God, the Father, and His Son looked at you, whatever your name is, and He looked at me. And He said, I want that one. I will redeem that one to become special to me. I will pay with my own blood for that one. Not all of them necessarily, but he has a specific job to be done. Now that blood, yes, ultimately will cover all sin. It is big enough for all men's sins forevermore. It is that much greater than all men. But for his church, in the end time, his temple... He is only choosing a few. So if you are in the church today, the rest of the world has not yet been redeemed. He's not said, I want this one, this one, this one, on and on, 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 to six billion. He said, I want these few. I want that one. And I will redeem it now. My blood will cover it now. Not in the millennium, not in the great white throne judgment. It will cover it now. That one, you, whatever your name is, a redeemed people. What does he expect of us once he redeems us? That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. We are not to walk in the darkness of this world. We are to come completely out of the dark. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's why we hide when we sin. We know that. We're to come out into the light. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Consider this. God is doing a marvelous work here in the end time. There may be a Jerusalem that was the original. We need to prove that. But certainly we know there is a Jerusalem spiritually that never was before. That is the church, Hebrews 12, 22, and 23. God has called us into the church. Now, whether the physical Israel that we are considering today as a possibility as being the original Jerusalem, not the one in the Middle East today, may or not be the case. But Jeremiah 9.11 says that Jerusalem would become desolate with no inhabitant, along with the cities of Judah, and would become a den of dragons. That is a specific prophecy of Jerusalem, Jeremiah 9.11. Now the next question is why? Why would Jerusalem become that? Now, he was speaking there, I think, of physical Jerusalem, and I believe he was speaking of the church. The church is becoming desolate today. More and more people leaving, more faltering, more going to sleep and not waking up. It's becoming desolate, and it has few inhabitants that are true, faithful, godly people. And even they are still tainted by this world and its culture and society. I've harped on this and harped on it. But listen for a moment. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see. God is calling a people soon that he will summon to come to the leaders he has chosen and a temple will be built. There will be a physical Cyrus who will help do that and says to Jerusalem, you will be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid and God will give that Cyrus, whoever he is, whatever is needed to make sure that that happens, that the church is helped, even as King Cyrus did help the Jews, gave them the vessels of the temple and sent them back to Jerusalem to build the temple and to build the wall. There is an end-time fulfillment which will be far more climactic and more dramatic than what happened at the year end of those 70 years of captivity. I believe we have been given inside information on that, and we have better understanding of that than most of the church. With that comes a very heavy responsibility. All right, let's get back to the why. Why was Jerusalem prophesied to become desolate? because of worldliness, because of sin, because of the culture originally of that day that was full of fornication and lying and cheating and stealing and war 
and jealousy and cruelty and lust, vanity, greed, jealousy and envy, all those human things that the carnal, normal human mind is made of. Those people, over and over, vowed before God, we will follow you. And they immediately fell on their faces and went the other direction. God is giving us one last chance. One last chance to do it His way. He destroyed and took into captivity ancient Israel several times because of their sins, because they went the way of the societies around them. Now, he is calling us out of a society that is godless, that is satanic in every respect. There is nothing redeemable that is good from the ways of this world. Nothing. He's called us to be different for a special purpose. Now, if we are to be a part of the latter temple, the Jerusalem of God, and if we are to be a part of perhaps uncovering the real, original, true Jerusalem, if it be the case and what we are exploring, at least at the moment, I'm here to tell you, God is going to be very, very strict with us. He destroyed ancient Israel. He destroyed the church because we would not get over our vanity and our pride and our stuck-like glue to this world. That's why the church is in shambles today. That's why the original Jerusalem is desolate according to Jeremiah 9:11, and as a den of dragons. He is calling a people to be a holy, redeemed, royal people. He tells us in Isaiah 52 what we are to do. Well, 51, the last verse. But I will put into you the hand, I'll put it into the hand of them that afflict you, the, all the trouble that we've had, which have said to your soul, Bow down that we may walk over you, and you have laid your body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. We have knuckled under, we have laid down for this world and its ways, and we've let it walk all over us. And he tells us then, Wake up! Wake up! Put on your strength, not your weakness, not your lameness, not your feebleness, not your addictions and your idolatry, but put on strength, power. Get over it. Put on strength, Josiah. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Not the corrupt, not the abominable, not the Sodom and Egypt that Israel, that Jerusalem has become, be it physical Jerusalem or the church, or physical Israel, our nation around us. We are to be a holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come to you 
the uncircumcised and the unclean. God is going to make a separation between His holy people and the unclean people of this world. He is going to become a wall of fire and a separation as He did between Israel and the Egyptians. He is going to make His way and His will and His people known. But they have to be holy. They have to be empowered by the Spirit of God and not walk in the flesh but in the Spirit. And He will tolerate nothing less. I said, he will tolerate nothing less. He will weed us out if we are not willing to do it his way. He's had it with Satan's way. He's had it with this world's way. And he is right now on the very edge of destroying this earth the same way he did in Noah's flood. And he is going to do it. He said, don't even pray for this people. I am going to do it. Do not think for one moment that God is going to let me or let you be a part of his holy, powerful, royal priesthood his holy nation that will be held up as a light to the world unless we look a whole lot different than this world. This is it. This is the final curtain. This is the last act. And he wants us to step up, stand up, and be counted. He is not going to take a half-awake, sleepy, uncaring, Laodicean, lukewarm people to do the most dramatic thing he has ever done on the face of this earth. Now, if we're going to become a part of the drama, brethren, and we're right on the edge of it, if we're going to become a part of the drama, then we need to be the holy, powerful part that gives light to the world, not look like and act like the world. It has to be different. That is what God is calling us to do. He's given us opportunity to be a part of the greatest thing that he has ever, ever, ever done on this earth, if we will but respond. And if it is going to be a dramatic, climactic action, then the blessings that come with it will be dramatic and powerful. But if we cling to this world and we want to be part of it, God is dealing with us now, or will very shortly, on an individual basis. I think that he is calling a certain few to be the prep crew. And I think we're it. And he is soon going to call the leadership together. And he is going to draw people from all over this world to be a faithful remnant to build the greatest temple that has ever existed on the face of this earth. And we have an opportunity to be a very, very important part of it. But if he deals with the church in the way that he has and spewed it out of his mouth, 
How much more are we, whom he has given more information, if we do not respond? But how much more blessing will come if we do respond? He's promised us protection from the beast. He's promised us protection from Satan. He's promised us protection from death. He's promised us a place where we will truly live in peace and happiness, which hasn't come yet here on this property because we are yet carnal, because we are yet full of pride and ego and vanity and do not value each other ahead of ourselves. But it is coming. And he is trying us and testing us now before he will let us become a part of what he is about to do. And if this new Jerusalem he's going to build as a church or possibly as a physical location, he will not let us be a part of it unless we come up to scratch. Unless we stand for something. And unless we change and become a holy people with beautiful garments instead of those soiled by this world. I don't know how to say it more clearly and more plainly for this stubborn, carnal, wretched human being standing here or for you. God is giving us a chance to be part of the biggest thing that has ever been done. But if the blessings will be dramatic, so will the penalties. If, we will, if God has chosen us to do it, and we've set our hand to do it, and we go part way, and we're not willing to see it through, expect lightning to strike. Expect it, because it will. God has brought us this far. He intends to use us. And if he's going to use us, he's going to have to help change us so that by the Spirit we might learn to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Your mind and mine, by nature, are enmity against God. We are deceitful and desperately wicked by nature. But by the power and the Spirit of Almighty God, we can learn to walk by the Spirit instead of by our addictions or our idolatries. And we can become part of that which is the greatest thing that has ever been. We can be the leaders in this world and in the world tomorrow to bring peace, happiness, prosperity, and security to the whole world. We who are older, perhaps as spirit beings, our little children as physical leaders who have learned which way to go. It's up to us, brethren. If you want to be a part of what God is doing, then become like God. Think and act like God. I know I can talk about various aspects of the cultures of this world. And some of them you'll agree with me on, and some you'll agree intellectually, but emotionally you'll say, I can't give that up. You won't face it. You have your addictions. You have your idolatries. You've got to face it before you can ever overcome it, whatever it is, or they are. We must be brutally honest with ourselves and honest before God.
And he expects us to overcome, not just talk. He expects us to change. He expects us to really live by his law, which is holy and just and good, so that we might receive the blessings of keeping his law, truly loving one another. Train's leaving for the most dramatic ride the world has ever known. All aboard.